0: Good morning. My name is Jessie Selner, and I'm a member of the Southeast Charlotte Community Group. It's nice to see you. This morning's reading is from Hosea. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord." Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Akor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Good morning, Christ Central Church. It really is a privilege uh, to be with you this morning, this weekend, and Lord willing, depending on how the sermon goes, you'll have me back next weekend as well. Uh, I've known uh, your pastor, Reverend Howard Brown, for a lot of years before he came down here to help plant uh, this church and was up in Baltimore. And so uh, it's a joy to be standing here in this pulpit to bring God's word before you. And I am glad indeed that my wife, Kim, is is with me this morning, because every time people give all these accolades, you know, she can be here to set the record straight. So I want to speak to you this morning, and we'll do another passage in uh, the prophet Hosea next week as well. But I want to speak to you out of the text that you have just heard read from chapter 2, verses uh, 10 to 23. On this subject, they match made in heaven. A match made in heaven. And here really is uh, the point of everything I'm going to say to you in this message is this, that Jesus Christ, the church's husband, woos to himself undeserving, undesirable, and unfaithful people, lavishing them with a rich an abundant love. That Jesus Christ, the church's husband, woos to himself undesirable, undeserving, and unfaithful people and lavishes them with a rich and abundant love. Now, you gotta listen to the rest of the sermon, but that's the whole point of everything I'm gonna say. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you Thank you for your word that is, uh, that, is, that is living, that is active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know, God, we all in this place are naked and exposed to you, the one before whose eyes we must all give account And we're grateful because that's good news. As you know, therefore, precisely what we stand in need of. So, God, would you be pleased to take these efforts of mine in your word, weak and unworthy though they may be, and use them to meet us where we are and give us what we need. Lord, faith, hope, peace, joy, encouragement, love, correction, whatever it is, that we would be people who live for the glory and fame of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, we all have, we all have a criteria for what makes somebody uh, marriage material in our eyes. If you're single and you desire to be married one day, you no doubt have a list of qualities uh, and and traits that you are looking for. You've you've got some things that you're uh, maybe a little bit flexible on, right? Uh, 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 But there are some things for you that are non-negotiables. Some of us, right, some of us get, get the list down to every jot and tittle, and then others of us are maybe a little bit more generic with our list of traits and qualities we're looking for, but one thing that we all share in common, the one non-negotiable that all of us have is that you're not gonna marry somebody that you're not attracted to. Now, it's not that the person has got to, you know, be qualified to make the cover of Glamour magazine or or Men's Health, right? But in our eyes, in our eyes, that person has to have an attractiveness about them uh, that, that we find appealing. If that's missing, if that's missing, then it's a non-starter. Our desire to marry someone and, Lord willing, begin a lifelong marriage is conditioned on that person being attracted to us. Uh, uh, now, right? I didn't ask her, so I'm going to embarrass my wife, but that's okay. It is our anniversary weekend, so I can ask for forgiveness later, Right? but we have a song, we have a song, all right? We got a song, everybody should have a song. Our song is I Only Have Eyes For You by the Flamingos. Now I don't have this voice, I ain't gonna sing it for you, but the lyrics go something like this. You are here and so am I. Maybe millions of people go by, but they all disappear from view and I only have eyes for you. Now, it's a little mushy, right? But that's the point. You gotta have that kind of attraction or it's a deal breaker. And there's actually nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing and you pray that that attraction continues to grow over your life together. And see, that's what makes the text before us this morning so crazy. What we have in these verses is a promise to marry and the the picture of a beautiful and glamorous wedding, but something is off. The bride is unattractive. The bride is undeserving of her husband's love. The bride is unfaithful and undesirable, yet this husband says that he is going to woo her and lavish her with an incomparable love. Who would do something like that? Who would do something like that? You wouldn't. I wouldn't. We wouldn't bind ourselves forever to someone who had nothing attractive about them, but God would. This text and this message, a match made in heaven, is ultimately the picture of how Jesus Christ brings us to himself with a love that is unconditional. That is, that is a love that is not conditioned on anything but his good pleasure and his unshakable commitment and desire to love us. And you got to get this. You and I have got to get this. Like I'm not even really outside of the introduction yet, but here it is. At the very beginning, you and I have to be clear that the love of God in Jesus Christ for you is not based on any aspect of your performance. God's love in Jesus Christ, even here at the end of the school year, is not based on how well you do in school this year. God's love in Jesus Christ is not based on your last performance review at work. God's love in Jesus Christ is not based on anything that you think or I think that we can do to measure up to whatever standard we think makes us deserving of love. These verses, they destroy that type of thinking, and here's how they do so. They bring us to the place where we realize that we cannot make ourselves attractive to God. The woman in verse 13 of the text adorns herself with rings and jewelry to try to make herself desirable. Uh, But it's no use. Her husband can see her unattractive heart. You can't dress yourself up enough to fool God. It's only when we get to that place that we can hear his voice calling to us in Jesus Christ, incredibly committing himself to us with an unconditional love. Here are three things I want to talk to you about in this message from these verses. I want to talk to you about misplaced desires from verses 10-10. To 13, and then God's desires in verses 14 and 15, and then third, changed desires from verses 16 to 23, misplaced desires, God's desires, and changed desires. In verse 10, we find we find ourselves hearing the continuation of some hard language, some harsh language that actually begins in verse two of this second chapter of Hosea. The Lord has said of his people, I've prospered them with all of this stuff bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink but they don't realize that it was me who gives it to them I lavish it upon them but they use it in their worship of Baal they use it in their idolatry therefore he says in verse number 9 of of Hosea chapter 2 I'm going to take back all of my stuff Hosea 2 and verse 9 he says therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine In its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. Even the wool and the linen that was used to cover her, he says he's going to take it away. And now, in verse 10, the judgment goes from bad to worse. Not only am I going to take back the things that I prospered her with, the Lord is saying, I'm going to expose her shame. I'm going to uncover her shame or her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And and there isn't one of them who's going to rescue her from my hand. Understand that what we are reading in these early chapters of the book of the prophet Hosea is a reflection of Hosea's life and his marriage with his wife, Gomer, but there's a transition in the language that is being, uh, that from being less focused on on what Gomer as an unfaithful wife is doing, and more clearly directed toward the nation of Israel. And there's no doubt about that when we read verse 11. The Lord says of Israel, I'm going to put an end to her celebrations, her rejoicings, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her festivals. And here's what's going on. The Lord says in verse 13 that he's going to literally visit upon her the days of the Baals when she burns incense to these false gods. For 200 years. For 200 years, the nation of Israel had been openly worshiping false gods. They'd been blatantly worshiping idols without any shame. But they've been continuing to celebrate all of the festivals that had been laid out for them in the law of Moses. They, they, ha- they don't have any clue anymore as to the, the purpose and function of those festivals in the law. They'd forgotten about how the Lord who had instituted them. They had forgotten about him. They had forgotten about how each one of those festivals spoke to his redeeming power. How each one of those festivals, they spoke to his abundant and gracious provision. How each of those festivals spoke to his deliverance and the liberty that they were brought into in him. They had become apostate. They had forsaken the Lord. That's the height of the condemnation in verse number 13. It says that she went after her lovers, but she forgot me, declares the Lord. She went after them, he says, but she forgot me as one. Commentator points out it is noteworthy that their apostasy had not caused them to abandon the routines of their life under the covenant. In other words, they maintained a shell or a form of religion. They were outwardly carrying on the duties of the faith and were completely blind to the fact that God had rejected them and was fed up with their way of life they are performing these ceremonies they are performing these celebrations in sincerity but they are sincerely wrong do you know that sincerity sincerity is not a litmus test for truth you can be as sincere as the day is long and still be wrong it's like the apostle paul's words to to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, where he says that some people, Paul says, have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. The Lord is going to put a stop to their pretending. Why the pretense? Why? What was driving all of this false worship? What was driving all of this idolatry 200 years before Hosea's prophecy, Israel's king, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, it says he set up idols in uh, Dan on the north side of the territory and and Bethel in the south part of the territory for the people to worship and to make offerings to. But what this text gives us as as a practical cause are their misplaced desires. Israel's culture was steeped in greed and desiring more material luxury. The Lord says in verse 12 that He is going to devastate her vines and her fig trees. These vines and these fig trees, they are the things of luxury. Her attitude is that these are the things, that these are the wages that my lovers give me. Israel is is pictured as an adulterous prostitute who desires the wages that she says that her lovers give to her. So she adorns herself to look attractive and desirable as possible. She desires lush vineyards and, and fruitful fig trees, these things that make for the good life, luxury, for comfort and for satisfaction and there is a point of contact between us and this ancient Israel it's the question of desires it's the question of misplaced desires and satisfaction we are confronted with it every day I subscribe to an audio journal called Mars Hill Audio for several years now it's is an audio journal that describes itself as committed to assisting Christians who desire to move from thoughtless consumption of contemporary culture to a vantage point of thoughtful engagement. And a number of years ago, a title of one of their articles was Freedom, Property, Desire, and Community. And the speaker made this point in talking about marketing and advertising in our culture that that he said, marketers are engaged in an organized creation of dissatisfaction. The goal of advertising, he said, in Western culture is to create a perpetual dissatisfaction. Newness, he said, feeds our desire to move on to something else. (laughs) Like, I mean, I got, I got a, I got, I got keep getting these, these emails from like the car dealership that I got my car from like three years ago. He said, this dealership says, listen, your trading value for your car has never been higher. We will give you X amount of thousands of dollars for that one, and you only have to pay X amount of thousand dollars more for the latest one. Right? And my, my eyes perk up and I say, whoa. You know, a new 2021, it's got more bells and whistles than my old 2018. But ain't nothing wrong with the 2018, right? The desire to, the, 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 the push to create a perpetual dissatisfaction. Moving on to the newest and latest thing that, 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 that we're fed. They feed our desire for desires. <laughs> One commentator put it this way, fixation on the adultery metaphor and the erotic aspects of the fertility cult can prevent us from recognizing the sincere devotion and the spiritual blindness that has seized the people. Perhaps that is because we too feel vindicated by the external trappings of success and take this to be the validation of our theology and practice. Could we go back to Hosea's time, we might be shocked to discover that the spiritual decadence of Hosea's day was no more severe than our own. Worse yet, we might find ourselves wondering why Hosea was so upset with his generation because we have more in common with them than with him. Our misplaced desires probably have got nothing to do today, right, with lush vines or fruitful fig trees, but we've gotta be honest and confess that there's a sense of fun and enjoyment, right, we have in desiring new stuff. Even if we can't afford it or don't buy it, we still dream about it. And if we're left to our own devices, our desires will plunge us into deeper and deeper idolatry. What I mean is that those desires will become ultimate. Those desires will take the place of God in our hearts. They will become the primary pursuit of our lives. Another commentator put it. Harvest after harvest went by and Israel sank deeper into idolatry. No apparent punishment came from the God of history. The Lord did not seem to care, but now, he writes, the days of the Baals will demand their due. Given our own misplaced desires, What we see in verses 14 and following about God's desires are that much more amazing. We've had this hard-hitting language, right, that I've referenced verses eight and nine of this chapter already. The last time the Lord said that the, the people worship Baal was in verse eight, and then he starts off verse nine saying, therefore, right, therefore, because of their idolatry, here's what's going to happen. I'm gonna take back the abundance that I lavished on them, and there's punishment to come. And then it gets worse in verse 13. I'm gonna punish them for the days of the Baal She forgot about me. Verse 14 now starts off with another, therefore, just like verse 9. And if we're paying attention, we're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know how much more of this doom and punishment I can take. But God reverses course completely beyond anything we would expect. He says of his ugly and prostituting people, therefore, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to lead her into the wilderness. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there he says in verses 15 and 16, I will give her the vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my Baal. Left to her own devices, Israel was not going to desire the Lord. She was going to desire things, and she would refuse to give him recognition, love, or devotion, even after he provided her the things. She would not acknowledge him. Indeed, she would give acknowledgment and worship to gods of her own mind and her own creation. Those piercing words, she forgot me. That would be the final word unless the Lord acts. Unless the Lord acts, we're going to be people who will worship anything but him. It'll be like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, where he makes it clear that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, he says, suppress the truth that we are without excuse. That, that, that although, he says, they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In the midst of that kind of language... The Lord exposes his heart. Please don't miss this. It is unfathomable to think that the Lord, Yahweh, the only God, desires to take unfaithful prostituting people and bind them to himself forever. And yet, if he doesn't, the prostitutes have no hope. We will continue to call him out of his name. We will call him my Baal and we will do so for the things that we think we can get from him if that's the only use we have for God unless he allures us, unless he woos us. Do you understand that this is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ does? He allures us. He woos us. It is only in this truth of the Christian faith that we see both the majesty and the might and the uncompromising glory of God along with his compassion and his humility. Make no mistake about it, y'all. We're the unfaithful prostitutes. We're the ones who are exposed as unworthy of marriage no matter how much we try to make ourselves look good and desirable. But the God of all creation says, "I desire you. I want you and I've proved it by sending Jesus Christ to the cross." I love I love the more literal translation of the last part of verse 14 most English translations have it saying I will speak tenderly to her Uh, I will speak tenderly to her but if we were doing more literal word-for-word translation he says I will speak to her heart I will speak to her heart. And I love that because there's a gospel song by, God, by Donnie McClurkin that I love that, that says and asks the Lord that just that, speak to my heart, Holy Spirit. Give me the words that will bring new life, words on the, the, the wings of the morning so dark nights will fade away if you speak to my heart. Speak to my heart, Lord. If I can hear from you, then I know what to do. I won't go alone. I'll never go on my own. Just let your spirit guide and your word abide. This is what God is saying he will do. I will speak to her heart. How does the Lord woo us? How does he allure us? He speaks to our heart and we see. This picture of restoration. It says the valley of Acor will become a door of hope. The valley of Acor is the valley of trouble. <laughs> It'll be made into a door of hope, he says. The vineyards that will be that were made into a forest and that were devoured by the beasts of the field will be given back. This is a match that's made in heaven, not because we've met any of the criteria that would make us marriage material, but because the Lord desired a bride. And he determined from heaven to get himself a bride. And what he does is take people like us who have misplaced desires and woo us by speaking to our hearts so that we see clearly his mercies to and for us in Jesus. And then he changes our desires. Verses 14 to 23 are great. Declaration of God's saving grace. Here in these verses, where the Lord says, I will speak to her heart, and then we see this reversal. We see, listen, we see the reversal of the names of Homer, uh, Hosea, and Gomer's three sign children. Had we been reading from the beginning of the book of Hosea, we would have heard these verses in chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, where where the Lord uh, tells Hosea what to name his three children. It says that the Lord said to him after the birth of his, his first child, a son, the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And then Gomer conceives again, and and she has a daughter, and the Lord says to Hosea, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And then the Lord says, when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived again, and, and she had a son. And this time the Lord says, call him, name him, not my people, for I am not your God, and you are not my people. This, was, like, How do you like to go around life with your name being no mercy? Not my people, right? This is Hosea's children. And now here's what the Lord says. In verse 23, I will sow her in the earth to myself. I will have compassion on no compassion, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say to me, you are my God. The impact of his promise to us is to change our desires, to remove the names of the idols from our mouths. Three times in verses 19 and 20, notice this, he says, I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me. Understand that in the ancient Near East, a betrothal wasn't simply like our engagement. Right? Two two people in our, in our culture can be engaged, right, and and they can change their minds and decide that we're not going to get married. But in the ancient Near Eastern context, the betrothal, it was the finalization of the commitment to marry. To be betrothed was as good as being married. I saw this in real life example in the church that I had the privilege of pastoring for 10 years in, Columbia, Maryland, we had a number of uh, of folks in our congregation, young folks who were second generation, uh, West African immigrants, mostly from Ghana, some Togo and Nigeria. So I had an opportunity to perform a lot of weddings with these young folks, and there was always, right, the engagement ceremony before the wedding in the church, and the engagement ceremony was literally just as good as the wedding. After that, it was a done deal sealed forever. Matter of fact, I learned a couple of things that I, I want to in, incorporate oh, when my daughter gets married, you know, because they, you know, they do a bride price, right? And, <laughs> and then in the engagement ceremony, right, They'd have this language, you know, when they bring the, the bride and, and they say, you know, and one of the elders, uh, the, the, either the father or his representative from uh, the, the, the bride's side would say something to the effect like this to the groom, we have, we have planted and nurtured and watered this, this, uh, this seed and, and she has grown into a beautiful rose. Why should we uproot her from our garden and plant her in your garden? Yes, amen. I'm a, you know, my daughter doesn't want me to do that, but I'm like, we're going to borrow that. Because I want to know the answer. Because here's the deal, right? All of that is beside the point. Here's the point. The betrothal was the wedding. It was the marriage, rather. To be betrothed was to be as good as marriage. So here's what the Lord is saying in verses 19 and 20. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, in justice, in love, and in compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Right, in the betrothal, the husband pays the bride price, right? They didn't just show up to the wife's family empty-handed and ask for the woman's hand in marriage. The bride price was part of the guarantee that the groom wasn't going to change his mind. It was the means by which the groom obtained his bride. Well, here's the thing. What the Lord is saying is I'm going to pay a bride price to obtain my bride. The bride price is righteousness and justice. It is love and compassion that are all summed up in this one word, faithfulness. And notice, right, it is not our righteousness. It's not our justice. It's not our love. It's not our compassion. But the Lord's righteousness, the Lord's justice, the Lord's love, the Lord's compassion, his faithfulness that he pays in order to bring us to himself. God pays the price, the coin of grace to obtain the bride he loves and he pays this coin of grace on the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where the vows are sealed. These verses, they point us forward to what the apostle John says in Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 to 9 when John says then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, John says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We still, we still look forward to that day, to the final completion of this match made in heaven, we still look forward to the day when all warfare is abolished, the the breaking of the bow that he talks about and the people rest securely, like he says. But what happens right now is that through faith in Jesus Christ, these things are what become our heart's desire. The righteousness and the justice, the love and the compassion, the faithfulness are descriptors of life in the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you care about justice? (laughs) Do you care about faithfulness and righteousness on a practical level? it's only because God has changed your desires. It's only because you've been given eyes to see his justice and his righteousness and his love and his compassion. And it's not as though we will not no longer struggle with misplaced (laughs) desires, right? Can you testify you still, even if you're in Christ, got some misplaced desires? So it's not as though we won't have to fight, but this is what the Spirit of God does. He comes and he, he turns our hearts toward a desire to see and live into the things that he cares about. And that's why we do like every, every week. We'll do right after this sermon in a few minutes, right? We'll have a confession of sin. Why do we do that, right? We bring back and confess those misplaced desires because through faith in Jesus Christ we've been changed and we don't want them to, we don't want to live into them anymore. We don't want them to be our defining desires. When God changes our hearts, what we begin to desire are the things of his kingdom. We listen to Jesus when he says, Things like he does in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, Jesus says, will be added to you. Righteousness and justice, love and compassion, they matter to us on an individual level. They matter to us on a corporate and collective level as a church. They matter to us on a societal level. And they matter because our desires are being changed from lust and greed to kingdom desires we begin to have a different view of what makes for wealth and prosperity. We've been richly lavished by an incomparable love. What we see see in the promise of God is simply this. He changes our hearts so that we are no longer content, so that we are no longer satisfied with misplaced desires. We begin to want what he wants. Have you seen the switch in your own heart? Have you seen the reversal taking place? Have you been able to live into the tension of God's grace as he continues to to show in your hearts, to show you the ways in which your misplaced desires still keep popping up? If that's true, hallelujah because it means he's doing his work in your heart. You've been brought, we've been brought into this match made in heaven to the glory of God, to an eternal and incomparable love, just as we heard at the call to worship from 1 Peter to an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us that is unfading, that is undefiled uh, undefiled, that is imperishable kept in heaven for us he says who are being guarded by faith God is guarding us by faith because we've been brought into this match made in heaven let's pray our father and our God we thank you that you are the everlasting God we thank and praise you that you have seen fit through faith in Jesus Christ to seal us eternally as your people. We are now your people. We, those who have not received mercy, we have now received mercy. We thank and praise you for making us members of your kingdom and members of one another. Be, please, Lord God, to bless us to live more and more into the changed desires that you give us by faith in Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.